How is everybody? <clears throat> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing with a cold, so you'll have to forgive me. Um, and uh, if, if I sound anything at all like Ben Stein throughout this whole process, like just being sort of monotone, don't, uh, don't read that into this sermon series because we're starting today in the Gospel of Mark, and I couldn't be more excited about it. And I hope that you are as well. Um, you know, I chose I chose Mark um, because, man, I was just so ready for us to get into a gospel together. And, and Mark is the shortest. It's the most concise. It's basically sort of a, a news report version of Jesus' life and ministry. He just kind of tells how it is. He just keeps things going. It's a matter of fact, straight to the point. I'm going to tell you how it is. And... And he uses simple vocabulary and concepts, too, so it doesn't really matter uh, if you don't know anything at all about the Bible or if you you're really have a really robust understanding of Scripture, Mark is good for all of us. And so I, I'm excited about digging into it. Um, you know, if the news report illustration doesn't work too well for you, think of Mark as your favorite action hero comic book. You know, this might reside for a few more of you. Uh, and I don't say that to make a mockery of the Word of God at all, but, but Mark is really fast-paced and action-packed. He wants to describe vividly. He wants to illustrate Jesus' life and ministry. It's not enough for him to just tell you about Jesus. He doesn't want to say, hey, listen, guys, Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. He wants to show you. And so through all the bangs, through all the pows, through all the zaps, we see the ministry and activity of Jesus come together so that we see who He is. He shows us who He is. And I think that's far more weighty than just somebody kind of telling you matter of fact, like an epitaph on some sort of tombstone somewhere. But... Just because Mark's gospel is considered short, it's considered brief, it's only 16 chapters long, it's clear and concise, don't think that this sermon series is going to be. I've already had like some 70 sermons planned on this, and it's growing. I grew like two this week. Seriously. I'm not kidding at all. Um, And so who knows? I mean, it's so nice now because... I'm not bound by the calendar, y'all. I, I don't have to preach between the soft launch and the hard launch, or I don't have to fit something in around you know, Easter or whatever. I can just do what I want. You know, <laughs> This is great. So if I decide, you know what, I don't want to preach on these ten verses, I'm, I'm just going to preach on these two verses. I have the freedom to do that, and I just have to let Caleb know, and he has to deal with it. right? <laughs> and, and if I decide later on, you know what, Two verses is too many. I want to focus on this one word. You guys are suddenly freaking out because you're like, how many words are in Mark? I don't want to be here that long. You know, um, you know what we're thinking is, is like with if you include the holidays, if you include giving other people's opportunity to preach, you include the possibility of sort of interrupting sermon series. We're going to be in here for like two years. Seriously, two years. And I hope that doesn't freak you out. I actually hope that that excites you because it excites me. Because here's the thing, guys. If you've been a Christian long enough at all, you know that you never move away from the gospel. You never move away from it. This is not a message that just you know, gains you entrance into the kingdom of God. It doesn't, it's just not a message that you need to hear so that you can believe, so that you can become a Christian, and then all the rest of my life is about something else. It's about how, it's about my obedience. It's about how I followed the law. It's about how I, uh, it's about me and Jesus, right? In sort of our own personal relationship, but the gospel is back there. I've been a Christian for 22 years. And I just, I was brought to tears by, before the throne of God. We never move away from the gospel. The gospel is the answer for all of our situations. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, maybe too many pills or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know, 
You have marital problems. The answer is the gospel. You have financial difficulties. The answer is the gospel. You have hopes and dreams and aspirations of what you're going to do with the rest of your life. The answer is the gospel. We never move away from it. Never. It's there every moment of every day. We preach to ourselves. We constantly remind ourselves of who we are in light of the fact that a holy God sent his son to die for us. This is a beautiful message. And it is a, a drop in the bucket to spend two years in the gospel of Mark. And so I pray that you're excited about it. I pray that you recognize, if you haven't recognized it yet, that you recognize it today, that the gospel is for all of life. You never, ever, ever, ever move beyond it. You won't. So uh, here we go, right? But the reality is, even in eternity, we're going to be proclaiming the gospel. Do you realize that? Before the throne of God, right? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. As people from every tongue and tribe and nation are gathered around the throne of God, we will be proclaiming the truth and the beauty of the gospel. We never move away from it. And so it's good for us to spend some time here, to think deeply here, to be motivated here, to let the the gospel truth sink deeply into our lives because we recognize and we appreciate the fact that this is the message, if you're sitting here as a believer, that breathes life into your dead souls. This is a beautiful message. So we, even if we've heard it, Every Sunday, and if you come here at Redeemer, we try to make sure that you hear it every Sunday, at least. Then it ought to bring continual joy, knowing that this is the message that saved your souls. Right? So before we dig in any farther, let's, let's just pray. Father, as we gaze deeply into the truth and beauty of, of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I pray that you either give us for the first time, or restore to us the joy of your salvation that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. May Jesus be our hope and our treasure. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, um, I've got to give background for the... The, the entire gospel. So we're only really going to look at one verse today, Mark 1, 1. So turn in your Bibles there, beginning of Mark. Mark 1, 1 reads, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the author of Mark never identifies himself within his work. But textual and historical evidence all point to this man named Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. This man was probably John Mark, John Mark appeared seven times in New Testament passages. You first see him on the scene as he's traveling with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He kind of got freaked out at Pamphylia, split. Uh, you know, on their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas got in a fight over whether or not to take John Mark. John Mark went with Barnabas. Paul took Silas, took off. You know, uh, but by the end, it all comes together in this beautiful thing because. Paul sees John Mark as, as a very useful man and wants to have him around. Second Timothy, Paul's last letter that he wrote from prison, commends John Mark. So there was restoration there. It's a beautiful thing. And we know that uh, from 1 Peter 5 that John Mark ended up hanging out with Peter in Rome by the end of Peter's life. Um, some scholars uh, believe that Mark may have even been a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, and even sort of deridingly includes himself into his into his uh, his own work. Um, if you've read Mark 14 verses 51 and 52, there's this two verse account of this naked young man. Right? Have you ever read this thing? It is like, why is this here? I don't understand. But but anyway, this young man is following Jesus out to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus is arrested. And when Jesus is arrested, uh, the soldiers come and they seize this young man. And it says he's only wearing this linen cloth. Well, he freaks out, splits, takes off naked. And that's all you ever heard about this dude. You know, it's like, why do you include that? 
That makes no sense. Unless, unless Mark is a humble dude and he's including himself in the work or his audience knows who that man is. And say that if nothing else, his audience knew exactly who that was. So this is a very personal letter. But whether or not he was there with Jesus, there's a lot of textual evidence based upon his gospel that he's, he's basically telling the eyewitness accounts of Peter. I, I can't even possibly begin to go into that. You just have to take my word for it. And if you want to know more, I can point you to a lot of introductions for Mark. But uh, Mark wrote this gospel to Gentile Christians in the province surrounding Rome. And, and these, these um, Gentile Christians were facing persecution probably at the hand of the Roman emperor Nero. So the date for this work would probably be around the 50s or 60s A.D. That's when Nero was kind of hot and heavy at persecuting Christians. And that's an amazing story in and of itself. Um, but given his audience, we now, these persecuted Christians, we also can, can get a clear understanding of what Mark's purpose is. Okay? He's, remember, he's writing to persecuted Christians. And so... Mark is not primarily a historical or biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus, though it's clearly historical and it has some biographical information in it. But if you want more biographical information on Jesus, you need to look at Matthew or Luke. But Mark's primary goal is proclamation. He wants to tell you the gospel. He wants to tell these persecuted Christians not to be discouraged because Jesus suffered in every way that they have. And he wants to tell those who have not heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who he was, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And you're going to hear that phrasing a lot as we work it out. I mean, in fact, I encourage you guys to study Mark as we go through that. But if you, if you do, you can break Mark into two sections. Verse, chapters 1 through 8, Mark's goal is to identify who Jesus was. right? And then you get to the end of chapter 8, Peter confesses, you're the Christ. And then suddenly, starting at chapter 9 and moving on to 16, Mark is now about why Jesus came. What he was trying to do. And intermingled with within all 16 chapters is this call to discipleship, what it truly means to follow Christ. So who Jesus was, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And again, you're going to hear this a lot as we go. Mark is all about Jesus, and he wants to define those three things for you. So now that we've got this context in mind, we can begin to break down Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this one verse serves as a banner. It serves as a theme, a title, if you will, of all of Mark's gospel. All 16 chapters are summed up and crammed into this one announcement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we've got to look at this word for word. This is probably, if there's one time where I'm going word for word, it's this time. Don't worry, I'm not preaching a sermon on each word, but we're going to cover every word. So first, I want to look at what is the gospel. A lot of times when we think about the gospel, excuse me, <clears throat> many times when we hear the word gospel, we kind of think about choirs and robes that are singing some sort of slappy, happy tune about victory in Jesus, right? Or if you're like me, you grew up Southern Baptist, it wasn't a, it wasn't a choir, it was a gospel quartet. And they didn't have robes, they slowed the music down, and it had sort of a country twang to it, Right? I mean, that's what gospel was to us. Or others treat it as the gospel as a guide to a better you. The gospel is a means of becoming a better person, right? Either through self-help or self-realization or self-image or self-consoling or self-denying practice, self-denying service. They somehow treat the gospel as a message that's about them rather than about Jesus. Jesus is a means to their end, rather than seeing themselves as a means to Jesus' end. It's an important distinction. 
So is the gospel good news that, that should elicit a joyful response? Well, absolutely. I mean, the gospel means good news. Was the gospel a term to report a victory over enemies? Without a doubt. In Mark's day, there were many gospels. In fact, if you had a good piece of news, you said, hey, guess what, Aaron? I've got a gospel for you. You know, got a good piece of news. And it was often in terms of, of uh, armies that had gained victory over another army. army. So, uh, so when the Romans defeated the Germanians, they had a gospel of the Roman victory over the Germanians. But, unlike these many Gospels, Mark describes it with a definite article. He says this is the Gospel. He doesn't say a Gospel. He says this is the Gospel. This is the good news. And from this point on, the history of this word changes. It is never seen as a gospel from that point on. It is the gospel. The word means it is intertwined with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus. No longer a gospel of victory over foreign armies. It is the gospel. Mark's gospel. The good news. The story of salvation in Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Make it clear that man's true need before a holy and righteous God is not personal betterment, but the forgiveness of sins. We're going to look at this story in a few weeks. Maybe a few more weeks. We'll see. But... This is the story of the lame man who his four friends brought to Jesus and lowered him down through the roof. Remember that? Jesus was in this house. It was jam-packed. They couldn't get in, so they climb up on the roof, tear a hole in the roof while Jesus is talking, lower him down through there, and Jesus sees their faith, and he turns around and he says, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus understood that the man's real ultimate need is not personal betterment. There's not the need to walk, though he does heal him, but ultimately to be saved from his sins. You see, our sin is far worse than we could possibly imagine. And it cuts us off from having a relationship with the one true and living God. The very reason for which we were created. We were created to have fellowship with God, to live within, within intimacy with Him. But our sin has cut us off. It has separated us because we have rejected Him. We have rebelled against Him. We have tried to live as if this is my world and I'm God. You think I'm wrong? How do you act when you're stuck in traffic? Are you like, hey, this is cool. Praise God. No. You're mad, right? I've got somewhere to be. I have no idea where it is or when I need to get there, but i got to make good time. You know, I mean, even something so simple as being stuck in traffic reveals the nature of our hearts that we rebel against God in thought and word and in deed. We want this to be our world. We want to control the situation. And at best, we want God to be a means to our end rather than us being part of his. And this is not a rebellion that we can overcome. We cannot earn our forgiveness just by doing some good works to try to go tit for tat. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't give you you know, a C- minus and let you slide through to the next class. It's 100% or nothing. And you cannot do that. You can't, even if you lived a perfect life from here on out, you can never atone for, you can never cover the sins that you committed unknowingly for the first X number of years of your life. You just couldn't do it. So if you are going to receive forgiveness, it's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we see that in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus clearly reveals his purpose. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Though this, he's fully God. And if anybody ought to be served, it's him. But he says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
to buy the souls of men and women who have rebelled against God. In his death on the cross, he substituted himself. His blood was shed to atone for the sins of many. He took on a death, a gruesome, vile, humiliating death, a death that we all deserve before God upon himself so that we could have his righteousness. He lived a perfectly obedient life and he laid it down for us. He laid it down for each one of us. And he says, his very first sermon in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. He says, believe in me. Believe in my life, death, and resurrection, and you will be reconciled to God to live forever with Him in His kingdom. Repent because His kingdom is at hand. It is now. The time is now. And this is a brief summation of Mark's gospel. You could pack all of Mark into that one word, gospel. That is what he means. That is the gospel message. This is the message that he is proclaiming, his extended sermon. Not so that you can just know something about the life and ministry of Jesus. That is not Mark's goal. To give you a historical account of this man named Jesus, some sort of moral teacher that can help you to live a better life. He's teaching you about the only way that you can come to God. The only way that you can be restored to Him. And He's calling every one of His readers to respond now to the Gospel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the Gospel. The good news that is centered second on Jesus. Another important word. This is not a gospel about a victorious king or a triumphant ruler, at least not in the earthly sense, right? Nor is this a story of a deity or some sort of demigod. This is the good news about a man, a man named Jesus. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't give a whole lot of background information about who Jesus was. I mean, if you read through chapter 2, all you know about Jesus is that he's from Nazareth of Galilee, right? If you read chapter 3, you know that he went back home and his family tried to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. If you read through chapter 6, then you finally start to learn a little bit about Jesus. He's returned back to Nazareth and the people are in the process of rejecting him. His family wants to, to get him again. And there we learn that, that, that Jesus was a carpenter, that he was the son of Mary, that his brothers, he's the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and a handful of sisters. And this is significant. What's clear from all of this is that Jesus is fully man. He was born of a woman. He has a mother. He was raised in a hometown with his siblings. And he had a job, right? Sometimes when we look at Jesus, we think that he is so unlike us. But this is the Son of God. But Jesus is also fully man, who lived a frail, ordinary life, just like you, just like me. In fact, if Jesus was sitting here today, I don't even know if we know him. He's that ordinary. So I don't want us to minimize the significance of this. He did not appear on the scene as some sort of Herculean demigod, half man, half God, you know, lifting stuff and fighting titans and all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, he didn't show up like that. He spent the third, first 30 years of his life being a nobody. Basically, I mean, his only claim to fame was, you remember when I was 12, around my bar mitzvah time, and I, I had that great conversation with the, the religious leaders of the day? And after that, nothing. 18 years of silence until he shows up on the scene again, ready to be baptized. This is crazy. He's a man. He didn't come in, in power as some sort of prince or nobility, but in meekness and frailty. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks, he was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. Jesus was a man so ordinary that the people could not believe. Third, 
that Jesus was the Christ. Now, Christ is not a surname. I don't know if you know that or not. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I say that mockingly because when I was a kid, I, that's what I thought, you know? I was like, I have a first and last name. I'm Chet Daniels. I even have a middle name which distinguishes me from the four other Chet Daniels that have occupied the earth through the entire history of the world, right? So I am now set apart by my middle name from everybody else, right? All four of them. But Jesus is not his last name. His, his parents weren't Joseph and Mary Christ, right? This name Christ has a very specific meaning. So in one sense, it's incorrect to think that Jesus' name is Jesus Christ. In one sense, because that name has meaning. But in another sense, if you've done that, don't feel too bad, right? Okay, don't feel bad. Because what's happened here in the New Testament, that title has been so intertwined with Jesus of Nazareth, that it has become an identifier of the man, and in one sense serves as part of his name. In fact, 12 times in the New Testament, it's used that way as an identifier. Jesus Christ, that's Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, right? So if you think that Christ is Jesus' last name, just realize that it's a title with great significance, right? But don't be too hard on yourself, because it now stands to make him distinct from all other men named Jesus, because he is the one and only Christ. But the word Christ has a very specific meaning. It means the anointed one. It speaks. Uh, it refers to the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the one who would liberate Israel from their oppression, the coming deliverer like Moses, who would free them and save them, a triumphant king who would redeem them from their captivity. There are so many Old Testament passages that point to this promised Messiah. We're only going to look at two. First is Psalm 2. I invite you to turn there. I don't have it up on the screen because I'm not that thoughtful. But Psalm Psalm 2. It says, I'm going to give you a little bit longer because I still hear pages rustling. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is Messiah. This is the Christ. Saying, let us burst their their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to be freed from God and his Messiah. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So here you see this connection between the Christ and God's begotten Son. The anointed Messiah who will be given the nations, who will possess the earth, who will be victorious over his enemies, who will reign over all as king, and who will bless all those who take refuge in him. So it's good and right that that the Israelites expected this kingly, victorious Messiah, this anointed one. Another passage, significant Old Testament passage about God's promised Messiah is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Again, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus actually applies this passage to himself in two settings. First, he alludes to it when John the Baptist's disciples came to him on John's request. And they wanted to know, are you the, the coming one? Are you the Christ? And, he's, and he paraphrases this verse of himself. The second is found in Luke chapter 4. When, when Jesus stands in the Jewish synagogue in Nazareth, he stands up to read this. He moves it to this passage and reads this very passage. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That anointed one that's promised right here, that's me. That is me. He directly applies it to himself, and yet the people rejected him. You see, though God had promised over and over and over and over again to send a Messiah, to send his Christ, as the people waited, they began to develop certain expectations of what this Christ would look like, what this Christ would be. Some of them were expecting a prophet. Others were expecting this triumphant king. And still others were expecting a priest. Jesus was all of the above, but not in the way that anybody anticipated. And so when he came, they rejected him because they had their preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. Now, We can easily sit here, look at our passage, and we can point the finger at these guys and sort of laugh at them and deride them because they just didn't get it. Why don't they get it? Why don't they see that their Messiah must suffer and die? Why don't they see that their Messiah is not some political leader, but a religious leader who would bring about spiritual change in their lives? Why can't they read the Old Testament and see this man for who he is? He just flat out told them. He took Isaiah 61 and said, hey, you know what? This is about me. Why don't they see it? Why are they so hard-hearted? And we point the finger and we scoff at them. But you know what? If we're in the same place, actually, we don't even have to be in the same place. We do the same thing. For us, we don't think that our Messiah is going to be this political figure, but we have very preconceived notions of who he is and what he's like and what he's going to do for us. You see, far from submitting to Christ, they wanted a Savior that they could control, and so do we. So do we. The reality is we're no different than them. They, they rejected Him. They, they persisted in unbelief because they didn't want the Christ of the Bible, but they wanted a Christ of their own choosing. And so do we. They weren't willing to submit themselves to the way in which Christ revealed Himself. Instead, they only took from him that which they wanted. Those things that they liked. Oh, Jesus, look at him. He was a great moral teacher. I'm going to take that, but I'm going to leave the fact that he died on the cross for my sins. See, we do the same thing. They didn't want Christ. But they only wanted the benefits that they could gain from him. And so do we. This will catch every single one of us. You know, David Garland in his commentary on Mark says it well. He says, like the Jews and the disciples, we want a Messiah who does our bidding, who wins our wars and destroys our enemies and exalts us. He exalts us. Throughout Mark, the disciples display a delight in power, glorious achievement and personal ambition. They want a Messiah who is above suffering and who will give them their heart's desire. We too want a Messiah who graciously adapts His will to our desires and needs and is dedicated to serve us rather than all humankind. That's a big thing. The Messiah we meet in Mark is a rude awakening for those who are more interested in themselves and in ensuring their own personal salvation and their own entrance into eternal life than in God and in God's world. 
as was the case during Jesus' ministry, so today many will not believe or they will try to mold Christ into their own images by telling him who he is and what he is to do. They want a glamorous, gimmicky, short-term solution to their own problems. Many try to domesticate the scandal. They try to turn the cross into jewelry and turn the Christ into a teacher of self-actualization. The Gospel of Mark is the antidote to this distortion as it presents the foundation story of the Gospel about Jesus Christ who suffers and dies on a cross. You know, as we look at the Christ that's presented in Mark, as we look at the Christ that's presented in the rest of Scripture, we have to come to the table open-handed. We have to accept Him for what He tells us about Himself, how He reveals Himself, not how we want to perceive Him. We cannot demand a Savior all the while rejecting the Lord. We cannot adjust Christ to fit into our desires for Him. We must submit and be conformed to His desire for us. He will not bend to our wills. But we are to be transformed by His. Jesus is the authority. This couldn't be clearer than in the last phrase, the Son of God. You know, of all the titles or descriptions that Mark gives of Jesus, this is the most significant, the most key, the most absolute, the Son of God. It is the ultimate description of Jesus, not as God's representative, not as some ruling figure who is supposedly endowed with certain divine powers so that he can rule on God's behalf, but that he is the one and only begotten Son of God. In addition to being Jesus, who is fully man in this title, we see that he is fully God. This theme runs throughout Mark and is the central description of Jesus. It happens at key moments throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. It's all pointing to the fact Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. At His baptism and His transfiguration, God declares from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even the demons... As Jesus exercises them in chapter 1, verse 24, in chapter 3, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 9, recognize Jesus to be the Holy Son of God. Hints of His divine sonship are made in a parable, in His end times discord, and even from the mouth of the chief priest who is there to accuse Him. And the climax of Mark's gospel occurs in chapter 15, verse 39. This is the pinnacle. All that Mark is leading up to when a Roman centurion looks on the dead body of Jesus hanging there on the cross and says, truly this man was the Son of God. The amazing thing is, it wasn't somebody who had been waiting for the Messiah who said that. It was an outsider. It didn't, it didn't happen when Jesus was feeding the 5,000 or when he calmed the storm or when he raised Jairus' daughter back to life again. It happened when he died on the cross that is revealed who he truly is, that he is the Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't reveal himself in his power as the Son of God. There are plenty of indications for that. His divine sonship is revealed over and over again throughout Mark in his displays of authority. 
You see, right off in chapter 1, he taught with authority, not as the scribes did. The people were amazed and astonished. Here's a man that teaches with such authority. Not like all those religious leaders that we followed before. He speaks with authority. He has authority over sickness, disabilities, and evil spirits. He speaks and people are healed. He speaks and demons flee. He, di- his, he displays his authority over nature by having the power to calm storms and to raise the dead to life again. And Jesus has authority over people. He called his disciples and by his authority they immediately left everything and followed him. And Jesus displayed his authority to forgive sins. What we see from all of this is that there's not one square inch of the whole of creation that Jesus does not have authority over. And who has this authority but God himself? Who has it? The authority over nature, the authority over evil spirits, the authority over sickness and death, and the authority to forgive sins, the authority to teach with authority. Only God. You see, Mark is telling us that Jesus is one person of the triune God. But nowhere else in is Jesus' authority as the Son of God more clearly seen than in his resurrection. Nothing points to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God more than his resurrection. Three times in Mark, he makes the profession that he is going to suffer, that he is going to be killed, And in three days he would rise again. If you read John chapter 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life and that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Saying, I have the authority to lay down my life and take it up again. And who has the authority over death and resurrection but God alone? See, Jesus' resurrection confirms without a doubt that He is the Son of God. And Paul recognizes the significance of this uh, when in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when he says that Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Not that he became the Son of God when that happened, but that his resurrection was a declaration for the world. It gave absolute evidence to the world that he indeed was the Son of God, this Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus has all authority. And if we are to follow him, we cannot twist him to fit our image of a desired Savior. We must obey him as Lord. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For... Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, this generation that tries to seek their own Savior, to seek their own Christ, to seek their own way to God, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is no man-centered Savior. He's not willing to get down and dirty to be able to accommodate to your needs so that you will come to Him. He doesn't need you. This is a, a God-exalted Lord. Alright? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we are going to follow Him, if we are going to call ourselves Christians, 
bearing His name, identifying ourselves with Him. He doesn't call Himself Chet. I call myself a Christian because I follow Christ. Because He is my Lord. I bear His name, not my own. Because He is my Lord. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must come to Him on His terms, not on ours. He is not your Christ. He is the Christ. He is not your Son. He is God's Son. He is not your own personal Jesus. He is the Jesus of the Bible. The Christ. The Son of God. Period. So this is Mark's Gospel. This is his confession of the good news of Jesus. That this is his banner, his theme, his title for his entire work. Jesus, fully man, is the long-awaited Christ, the victorious Savior of God's people, who has all authority and power as God's Son. This is Jesus. And Mark will take six short chapters to illustrate this. And we're going to spend at least two years here. Now, we could end right here, but if we did, we'd be leaving off three words. And I said we were going to cover every word, right? So we'd be true to my word by covering all three words. We've got three words left. The beginning of. And these are significant words. These are not meaningless words. If this... If what I've said so far is all of Mark's message, he could have just started out by saying, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom, let's go. But he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. Why does he say beginning? It could be that he's simply referring to verses 1 through 8, or maybe 1 through 13 as sort of a prologue to the life and ministry of Jesus? But I don't think so, because I've just argued that what he has said in this one verse encapsulates all of his message. And so what does this mean, the beginning of? Well, I think it means that there's not an end. That this gospel is still going on. That it's still happening. You see, Jesus... The story of Jesus didn't end with his resurrection. It's not just about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. It's about the continuing life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus lives. Jesus is ministering. Jesus is active. Jesus is moving. His gospel is still going forward. We're reading it right now by the grace of God because it's still going forward. Jesus is still ministering to our hearts. He's alive. He's active. And so, I think that he says this because he's trying to draw our hearts back to, or our minds back to, beginnings. What happened in the beginning? Creation. What happens here in this beginning? New creation. The immediacy The fast-pacedness, the action and activity, and the abrupt ending of Mark in chapter 16, verse 8, and I do think it ends there, not in 20. We'll talk about that later. All points to the fact that Mark believes that this message is continuing. He can cut it off because he's like, listen, you have to respond. You've got to do something with this. I'm not telling you a story just so you can learn a little bit more about Jesus and who he was. I'm telling you about who He is. And that has consequences for your souls. So how will you respond? What will you do? This is an immediate response. God's kingdom is at hand. It was at hand then. It's at hand today. And it will be at hand until Christ returns. So what are you going to do? This is not some message just to kind of hear and be like, okay, I'll think about that. I'll get back to you on that. I've got time. No, you don't. Your life is but a breath. And how will you respond to it? How will you respond to it? Mark is calling you to that. This is the beginning. What's going to be your end? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... God, we thank You that that You being a just and holy God who, who doesn't need us, who we have rejected over and over again, that You in Your mercy have sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, well, fully man and fully God, to live a perfect and obedient life and to give that life up on a cross for our sins. And that He rose from the grave so that if we believe, if we repent of our sin and turn towards Him and follow after Him, believing in Jesus, then we can have eternal life, that we can be a part of Your kingdom. This is amazing, God. We, we don't deserve it. God, I pray that... Each of us here today, whether we've heard the gospel a billion times or this is the first time we've really got it, that it would sink in deeply. That it would not just go in one ear and out the other, but that it would penetrate our hearts and we would realize that now is the time to respond. That you are calling us home. That you are calling us to our Christ. The Christ. The Son of God. God, I pray that we would recognize our need for salvation. And that we would stop trying to fit salvation into our preconceived notions. That that we would stop trying to barter with you. That we would stop trying to seek our salvation, our soul's contentment, our delight in something else. But seek it in your Son. May we be changed by it. God, I pray that if there are those here who have not responded to the gospel, that they would talk with somebody, that they would not leave here without responding audibly to the gospel. God, I pray for those who are here that maybe have heard this message time and time again and realize, you know what? I haven't been living like this. I need to repent and believe. That doesn't mean that they're not saved, but they need to tell somebody so that we can walk with one another, so that we can bear the truth of the gospel with one another, so that we can all grow together to reach maturity in Christ. God, we thank you for your son. May he be the most precious thing to us, because he is. It's in his name we pray. Amen.